right, well, if you have not already done so, open your Bibles to uh, Acts chapter 7. As I was saying, this is the, the last part of Stephen's speech before the Sanhedrin. Most people think that it ends sort of abruptly because, uh, as we'll see in verse 54 next Sunday, uh, when uh, the, they hear these things, they don't, they don't respond all that well, and they, they cut him off. And so the, the, spe- the sermon doesn't actually end the way that you, you might expect it to, but, but still, this is the, the last part of, of Stephen's speech before the Sanhedrin. And you'll remember that that Stephen is one of the newly ordained leaders of the church in Jerusalem and that he had been arrested for preaching the apostolic gospel. He had been arrested for preaching Jesus as the Christ. Specifically, they had had brought two charges against him. They had charged him with speaking against God and with speaking against Moses. Speaking against the temple and speaking against the law. Speaking against the place of worship and the practices of worship as they had been given to them by God. And so this speech is Stephen's defense against those charges. In fact, he's not only defending himself, but he's actually seeking to to show that it is not he, but the, the, the Jewish leaders who have missed the point of Moses and the law, who have missed the point of, of the temple given to them by God. And he's done this by tracing the history of Israel. First, he, he looked at uh, the, the history of the patriarchs, specifically Abraham and, and Joseph. Then he, he looked at the, the history of, of Moses, who was the, the redeemer, the, uh, the ruler and the judge raised up by God for his people to bring them out of Egypt into the promised land. And then now, finally, in this third part of his speech, he, he, he quickly summarizes really all the history after Moses, the, the history where they had the temple or they had the temple tabernacle and uh, the temple. And so it is in this speech that he is going to continue to defend himself. And really, he's going to make just a, a couple of basic points. He's, he's going to show that the, that the Jewish uh, perspective, the Jewish view, the Jewish understanding of the temple was not only misinformed, but that it was actually idolatry. They had turned the temple of God into an idol, and he's going to show what that idolatry reveals about their heart. So let's, let's look at this more closely. First, let's, let's look at their idolatry. Notice how Stephen begins in verse 44. He begins by pointing out that the, the people of God, uh, since the days of Moses, have always had the tabernacle and then later the, the temple. They have had it since the days when God revealed the pattern to Moses on Mount Sinai. He, he says, our fathers had the tent in the wilderness, verse 44. And they brought it with them when they conquered the land under the the leadership of of Joshua. When they entered into the promised land, when they crossed the Jordan, conquered Jericho, and began the the conquest of the promised land, they, they brought the tabernacle with them. And so it was, as they entered into the promised land, and it was the tabernacle was there with them up until the days of David, who, we're told, found favor in God's sight. And asked if he could build a house for the Lord. He wanted to to find a a permanent dwelling place for God. And of course, you know, it was Solomon who actually built the temple and established it there in Jerusalem. And so the, the significance of this is that the people have had the tent and the tabernacle from the beginning of their life as a nation. But more than that, not only have they had it from the beginning, but it was given to them by 
God. God is the one who, who revealed the pattern to Moses on Mount Sinai. And so Stephen is acknowledging that history. He's acknowledging, listen, this has been with us from the beginning. It's been with us from the beginning because God gave it to us. And so Stephen is not preaching against the temple. He, he's not saying that there's something inherently wrong with the temple. The, the temple was God's idea. The design was, was God's design. God is the one who gave them the tabernacle. God is the one who, who gave uh, uh, David permission to, to, uh, build, uh, to have his son build a temple. But nevertheless, despite the fact that, that God had been the one who, who gave them the tabernacle and gave, later gave them the temple, Stephen understands that these were always to be symbols of God's promised presence. We've been, we've been seeing this from the beginning, right? From the beginning of this sermon, Stephen has been driving home the point that God's presence was never limited to the temple. It was never limited by the temple. For God was with Abraham in Mesopotamia. He was with Joseph in Egypt. He was with Moses in Midian. Again and again, he has been driving home the point that, that where God is, is holy ground. The temple is holy because God is there. The, the temple was a, a symbol, a picture, a reminder of, of God's promise to be present with his people. It was not the instrument that made that presence possible. God's presence was never limited to or, or even it never required the temple. This is the point of the, the quote that we see from Isaiah there in verses 49 and 50. He says, The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. God does not need a handmade house. He, he doesn't need a, a human-constructed building in order to, to be present with his people. For he says through the prophet Isaiah, uh, verse 49, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Isaiah is reminding the, the Old Testament people of God. He says, listen, the, the, the temple cannot contain me. The temple uh, is, I do not need a temple in order to be present with my people. And Isaiah was not the first one to, to speak such words. Actually, Solomon himself recognized this truth when, uh, even at the dedication of the temple recorded for us in, in 2 Chronicles. Solomon himself says, But will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. At the very dedication of the temple, at the, at the very moment when, that, when the temple is, is at its grand opening, when its, when its opening is being celebrated by the people, Solomon admits, he acknowledges before God and before the people, this house cannot contain God. This, this house does not control God's presence. God doesn't need this house to keep his promises. He's still thankful for the temple. He still rejoices in the, the temple. He, he rejoices in all that it represents. And yet he recognizes that God's presence with his people does not require the temple. And seeing this, seeing how even Solomon and then later the prophet Isaiah recognized this reality, it helps us to see what is wrong with the, the Jewish leader's current view of the temple. It helps us to see that they were actually treating the temple more like an idol. 
They were, they were treating it like a means of controlling God. That's what an idol's for. That's why you, you make a, a graven image. You, you make a graven image to, to, to put God's presence and to put God's power under your control. To, 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 to guarantee His presence with you. Remember, this was the mistake that the Israelites made when they, they went to war with the, the Philistines. They thought, well, if we just take the ark with us, that will guarantee that God has to go with us. As if they could control God by some object. It's what idols are for. It allows us to, to control God. It allows us to, to dictate to God, to, to tell to God where he needs to be and, and what he needs to do. And they believe that the temple guaranteed God's presence with his people. And they believe that the, the ceremonies and the, uh, the, the sacrifices that, that uh, were part of the, the temple uh, law they believe that they, if they just followed those correctly, would guarantee his favor. If they just followed the rules, if they just did it the right way, if they just followed the traditions as they had been handed down to them by Moses, if they just did it right, then God would have to bless them. They had control of God's power. They could control God. They could, they could force him to bless. That's what's wrong with their view of the temple, it's why they feel so threatened by Jesus. Jesus who comes along and, and says that these ceremonies are no longer necessary because the reality to which they are appointed is here. Jesus who comes along and says this temple will no longer be the place of worship because now I am the temple and all who are on me are living stones in the temple. God will be present with us whether two or three are gathered together in his name. It was a threat to their control over God. It was, a, it was a threat to their ability to, to get what they wanted on their own terms. That's why they were so threatened by the apostolic gospel. And we must see that the, the same temptation is before us even today. Of course, we're not tempted by uh, the, the temple or by the, the ceremonial law. We don't have a temple. We, we don't follow the, the ceremonial laws. We're not sacrificing bulls and, and, and goats anywhere. Uh, we, we, we know that these things have been set aside. These are not our temptation as they were for the, for the Jewish leaders, but we still have the same basic temptation before us today. Even this morning, we, we, we confess that, that God requires of us the regular use of the ordinary means of grace that God has given to us. How do we become beneficiaries of the redemption purchased by Christ? We, we become beneficiaries through faith and repentance and the regular use of the ordinary means of grace. Think about that term, means of grace. What, is it, what does it suggest to us? It suggests that these are the means by which God pours grace into our life to strengthen us in our faith and repentance. So these are means of grace, but we can turn even means of grace into idols. As Isaac was saying to the kids, we can, we can come to worship for us-centered reasons, for, for me-centered reasons. We, we, can, we can come to, to show God that we're serious. We can, we can come to, to prove our devotion. We can do the same thing with, with the reading of Scripture, our own private devotions. 
We can, we can turn that into the means by which we uh, prove to God that we are worthy. By, which, by the means by which we establish our own righteousness with Him. The, the means by which we put Him in our debt. Even prayer. Prayer, which is, which is meant to be that humble pleading before God for, for His mercy and for His grace in our lives can become the means by which we seek to manipulate God to do what we want. In just a few minutes, we're going to be coming to the Lord's table. This table where we remember and celebrate Jesus' death, where we remember his his body broken and his blood poured out for us, that that we who were under curse might, might escape that curse and instead receive the blessings of the covenant. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. It's what we celebrate when we come to the Lord's table, that, that, that new, uh, the, the, the redemption that is ours in Him and the new relationship that is established by His sacrifice. And yet even here, we can, we can turn this table into a, a means of controlling God. If I just do it right, then God will have to bless me. If I just do it right, He will have to follow my script. The temptation that the the Jewish leaders had had succumbed to is is a temptation that is familiar to us all. Calvin said that the heart of every sinner is is an idol factory. Every sinner wants to control God. We recognize we live in a world that is beyond us. We recognize that we live in a world where there are powers that, that we cannot control or overcome. We need someone big on our side. We just want to be in charge. And so we try to find ways of controlling God. Even the means of grace that He gives us, the the, the promises of His presence that He gives to us, we can turn into idols. We can can turn to, uh, to our sinful purposes. And it is that which Stephen saw in the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders who accused him of speaking against God and against Moses, they were in fact the ones who had turned Moses and the the law and the temple that were, were delivered through him into idols, and therefore they were the ones who were blaspheming God, suggesting that he could be controlled by these handmade things. And it is Stephen's assessment, God's assessment through Stephen, of that type of relating to God that we see beginning in verse 51. What does, what does Stephen say? What does the Lord say about people who try to use him, who, who turn his means of grace into idols? What does he, he say about them? He says, you are a stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit. This is God's assessment of those who do not honor him as God, but seek to control him by his own means. What is it to be stiff-necked? Well, again, what Isaac was saying to the kids, right? Uh, The the image of stiff-necked doesn't mean that you you slept wrong and you woke up with a stiff neck. That's not the idea here. I feel that more and more the older that I get, but that's not what being stiff-necked is all about. Being stiff-necked is being like a horse that will not be led. It will not follow the the inputs of its its rider. It will not go where it is is told. It will do its own thing. It is stiff-necked, resistant to leading. 
We see something similar in the, the phrase uncircumcised in heart. Again, think of circumcision. Circumcision is a cutting away of the flesh, but it was always symbolic. Even from the very beginning, uh, Moses tells the, the people in Deuteronomy chapter 10, as they are preparing to, to go into the land, that, that, that external circumcision is not sufficient in itself. It is merely a picture of what is required. What is truly required is that you would circumcise your hearts before the Lord. You would cut away the, the flesh. An uncircumcised heart is a heart that is still captive to the flesh, still captive to the, to the sinful passions. It is a heart that is, that is in love with the wrong things. It does not love God above all. But rather, it still it loves itself. It loves its own power. It loves its own pleasures. It loves its own prestige. This is an uncircumcised heart, a, a heart with what Augustine called disordered loves. It is a heart that, that still is, is held captive by its sinful passions. And we can say something similar about uncircumcised ears. Again, circumcision is the, the cutting away of the flesh. And so ears that are still captive to the flesh are ears that will not listen to obey. They will not listen to obey. They may, they may hear, but it will not do what they are told. It will not listen to believe. They, they simply cannot take God at His word. These are uncircumcised ears. And the person with stiff neck and uncircumcised heart and ears is a person who always resists the Holy Spirit. And again, think about that language. It's, 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 uh, it's a, to resist the Spirit could, could mean any number of things. You know, because the work of the Spirit is, is so uh, multifaceted, it is so manifold. To resist the Spirit could be, it mean any number of things. But here in context, it, it seems to refer to resisting particularly the call to repentance. We see that when we, we notice what the, the connection here with the, with the prophets. Again, notice what he says. He says, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute, and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. And so he, he, he ties the resisting of the Holy Spirit to, to the rejection of the, the prophets, the refusal to listen to them. And who were these prophets that were being resisted? Who were these prophets that were being rejected? It is the men and women sent by God to speak the very words of God, to act as, as, as prosecuting attorneys of God's covenant, bringing God's charges against His people and calling them to repentance. And if the people would not listen, they would not acknowledge their, their sin, they would not acknowledge their need of a Savior. And when you reject the Lord, and when you reject His prophets, when, when you re, re, uh, refuse to acknowledge your sin and refuse to acknowledge uh, your need of a Savior, you cannot but end up killing that Savior. Which is exactly what the Jewish leaders ended up doing. The prophets killed those who announced beforehand the righteous one. And the Jewish leaders of Stephen's day actually killed the righteous one when he came. Why? 
Why do they react so violently against the prophets? Why do they react so, so violently against Jesus himself? Well, it's not hard to understand when you, when you recognize how offensive the gospel really is. I think all of, this, all of us feel this to, to some extent, do we not? You know, we, we talk about the fact that, that uh, you know, well, if you're willing to tell your, your best friend about your, your favorite movie or about your favorite restaurant, you ought to be willing to tell them the good news of the gospel, too. I find that comparison entirely unconvincing. There's not a lot of risk involved in, in telling your friend about your favorite restaurant. There's not a lot of risk involved in telling your, your, your friend about uh, your, your favorite movie. But the gospel may be to them the aroma of death. It is offensive. When you proclaim the gospel, what are you proclaiming? You are proclaiming that your neighbor is in need of a Savior like all mankind. He is under God's curse, an enemy, justly condemned, without hope, except for God's sovereign mercy. That is an offensive message. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you've joined this church, you've, you've confessed that. You've confessed yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving of his wrath, without hope, except in his sovereign mercy. And you have confessed that Jesus Christ alone is the Savior of sinners, and that you receive and rest upon him alone for your salvation. That is an all-or-nothing message. If you do not acknowledge your need of a Savior, if you do not acknowledge your, your sinfulness before God, if you do not acknowledge yourself as one justly condemned, then the one proclaiming that message or the one claiming to be the embodiment of the Savior you need, they must be silenced. And of course, that's exactly what the, the Jewish leaders did. They had God where they wanted him. They had control, they had the temple, and they had Moses. They didn't need Jesus coming in to, to mess up a good thing. They didn't need a Savior coming in and telling them that they were, were condemned, justly condemned before God. They didn't need a, a Savior coming in and saying that your only hope is to receive and rest upon my finished work because all of your works are but nothing before God. They rejected Jesus because they had what they wanted. They had control of God in the temple and in the ceremonies. And of course, the same question is put to us this morning as we read this text. Will, what will we do? If, if we are trying to use God if we are trying to control him, if we are, we are trying to make sure that, that, that he is, is, is pouring his power into our mold, if we are trying to use God, God says that we are a stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, resisting the Holy Spirit. You cannot honor God as God and try to use him at the same time. To honor God as God is to bow before him. It is to, to offer yourself to him as a living sacrifice without reservation or qualification. You cannot try to honor God as God and use him at the same time. Rather, you must. You must honor him as God by receiving the one he sent. 
to redeem you from your sins. What did we hear in, in Romans this morning? God did not spare His own Son, but put Him forward for us. He is the propitiation. He is the, the sacrifice by which the wrath of God is turned away. In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And we must receive and rest upon Him alone for our salvation. And we must continue to rest upon Him all our days. Jesus said turning uh, to, to follow Him, renouncing ourselves and following Him is a daily endeavor. It's not something you do once at the beginning of your Christian life. It's something we do every day for the rest of our lives as we deny ourselves and follow after Christ, acknowledging afresh each day that He is indeed leader and Savior, that He is indeed the, the, the judge and the redeemer that we need. So the question that is put before us this morning is, will we deny ourselves to follow him? Yes, it will feel like dying. It will, it will feel like giving up control, even as, even as giving up the temple and the, the law would have felt like death to the Jewish leaders. It will feel like dying. But what does Jesus say? What is his grand promise? The one who loses his life to come after me, that is the one who finds life. That's the one who saves his life. That is the one who will know life and know it in abundance. And so that's the choice. That's the choice. Will we continue to try to use God, control him, which is a losing proposition? Or will we humble ourselves and rest upon the Savior that he has given, that we might serve him all our days? And in, in his service, find true life. That's the question. It's the, the question Stephen was putting to the Jewish leaders, and we'll see next Sunday that they chose poorly. But their poor choice is a warning to us. Because even this morning, God is calling you. God is saying to you, I did not spare my son. I put him forward as the sacrifice for your sins. Will you receive him? Will you rest upon him? Will you deny yourself to Follow him. Don't try to use him, but rather entrust yourself to him that he might use you to the praise of his own glory. For it is in his service that you will find life and find it abundantly. And it's because he makes such an offer to us as sinners, sinners justly condemned. It's because we can be redeemed and saved. It's because our sins can be forgiven. It's because by his blood, we can be washed whiter than snow. This is why we call it good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in your goodness, and we thank you for your grace. And we ask now that you would be with us as we come to your table. Father, as we come to this table to, to remember and celebrate Jesus' death, may we come May we come to it as a means of grace, not as a means of controlling you, but as a means of receiving your grace and all the benefits of Christ, which are made available to us by faith. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.